Please remain standing as we come to the Lord's Word. We're going to be reading uh, Exodus chapter 2 this morning, the entire chapter, Exodus chapter 2. Context of this chapter uh, is that Exodus chapter 1 began uh, with Israel increasing, Israel growing and becoming more and more fruitful. Uh, and as a consequence, Pharaoh, noticing this, decides to uh, begin systematically destroying Israel. He starts by afflicting them and enslaving them with bitter hard work and ends up uh, at the end of chapter 1 commanding that every male child born to the Israelites uh, was to be killed, was to be cast into the Nile. And it's in this situation uh, that chapter 2 begins. So this is the word of our Lord. Uh, let's give our attention to it because the flower fades and the grass will wither, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was good, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. 
And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Since the reading of the Lord's word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come before you to sit at your feet and to learn from you, to glean, to be filled and blessed, may you work by your spirit. May the meditations of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds be pleasing in your sight. May you refresh us, Lord. May you humble us. May you comfort us. May you lead us back to the cross. It's in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So there's, um, there's a particular temptation that pastors tend to face. And I know it's not unique to pastors, uh, but maybe you'll resonate with it too. A temptation that really everything is in our hands. Things are in our ability to control. Uh, It's up to us whether we fail or whether we succeed. And really, it's our abilities, it's our strength. That is why God calls us. That is why God chooses us. But I'm not really sure where this comes from. Right? I, I feel this all the time, especially right, coming to a new place and candidating uh, and being around lots of new people. It's really easy uh, and tempting to believe that it's in my hands, that it's up to me to control how you view me. It's up to me to put my best foot forward. But in reality, it's in not my hands, but in God's. And God doesn't choose me or Pastor Brett or you because of what you do. And in fact, when we read scripture, what do we see? Do we see God choosing people because of how great they are, of how awesome they are, of how strong they are? Or do we see God choosing people who are weak, who are foolish, uh, who are broken, who are useless? And he's choose them and make them useful in his kingdom. How many times do we see this? We see and see this in chapter 1. I know we haven't talked about this ourselves, but one of the cool things about chapter 1 was that the Lord, uh, in opposing Pharaoh, in opposing Pharaoh's mandate that the midwives should kill all the Hebrew children, two midwives, they stand up against Pharaoh, and it is through them that the Lord uses uh, to save lives. Here's the king of the world, essentially, king of the greatest military power on earth, opposed by two lowly midwives. That's who the Lord chooses. 
How many other people do we see God choosing? People like David, the runt of the family, the youngest, the least experienced. How many times does God not choose the self-confident, but he chooses the humble and the lowly and the weak? But the problem with that temptation, right, that we sort of get a, a far too big head, right? We get a bigger idea of who we actually are. Uh, we have an inflated sense of what we can accomplish. The problem with this is that we start to believe that we are the ones accomplishing God's will. We are the ones who have been set aside for God's special purpose. That we have divine calling. We have these images of the glory and the great things we're going to do and how other people are going to praise us and view us uh, in an elevated way. There's probably a lot of different things that we could call this, uh, but I think one of them that we could call it is a Messiah complex. An idea that our purpose, our calling, is in our hands. That we have the ability to save others, to save ourselves, but really it comes down to pride. It comes down to what we want others to think of us. What we want to do. How we want to accomplish God's will. And of course, when you actually live that out, it doesn't take long until you're punched in the face with your own colossal inability. How long does it take until you've failed spectacularly and realize, wait a minute, I'm not the superstar I thought I was. I think that's what's going on here in chapter 2. That's what's going on in Moses' life. Because Moses, it's clear that God is setting him aside, that God is setting him apart for something, for some great purpose, that God is, is miraculously working in Moses' life so that his life gets spared when so many others, so many other Hebrew male children are getting killed. Moses is spared. And in fact, he's positioned right, in Pharaoh's own household, almost like Joseph, that the Lord is setting him up for something. But the problem is that Moses takes this and runs with it and tries to take things into his own hands. So let's look at the story. Let's read and see how the Lord has chosen Moses and set him apart and what Moses does with that and where Moses ends up and how the Lord then acts, how the Lord uh, is actually setting Moses up, not through glory and divine purpose, but through humility uh, and laboring in Midian. So let's look how the Lord positions Moses. Uh, chapter 1, where we talked about this and how the Pharaoh was uh, attacking Israel, essentially, enslaving them, commanding that their male children be destroyed, be killed. And then the story slows way down, right, and zooms in in chapter 2. And now we go into one household, uh, a Levite man and the Levite woman and the child that they have. Now these little details uh, will be important through the story. There's a little detail that chapter, uh, verse 2 has. So this woman conceives, right, and she gives birth to a son. And it says that when she saw 
that he was a fine child. She hid him three months. Now, I'm not sure why the ESV decided to translate it fine child. Uh, you may have heard when I was reading that I, I didn't say fine, I said good. That's because the word is good. She saw that he was good. And I think that's intentional. I don't think it's just she saw that he was you know, healthy and good looking like Solo. I think she looked at this child and said, this child is good. And of course, what mom wouldn't do that? Right? What mom does, looks at their child and says, eh, fine, fine, okay, normal. Most moms look at their child and go, this is the most amazing thing in the entire world. And Moses' mom is no exception. Uh, but the text explicitly says this because I think it's supposed to draw us back to Genesis. She saw that the child was good. There's something special about Moses, something that is being set apart about Moses. But there's another specific detail, another clue that the text gives us that something about Moses is special, that God is, is doing something behind the scenes. Uh, and she ends up not being able to hide him anymore, right? And so what she figures is, well, I'm going to follow Pharaoh's orders, but he never technically said I couldn't put him in a boat first. right? I'll throw him in the Nile, sure, once I throw him in a basket. But there's a detail in verse 3. So it does say that when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. She put the child in it. She put him in the reeds by the riverbank. Uh, but there's a very specific word that the text uses for the object that uh, Mama Levi puts Moses in. ESV says basket, but the word is really unique. Uh, it only occurs in one other story in Scripture. And that story is the story of Noah's Ark. So really what it says is she took for him an ark made of bulrushes. And she put him in the ark and put him in the river put him in the water in order to deliver her son from death, from the waters that had killed so many others. Uh, she puts him in a little ark, and the ark becomes the means of Moses' deliverance. I think there's a couple of things that we're supposed to see. First is what Pharaoh intended for evil, what Pharaoh intended to be a means of death, and judgment becomes the means by which God's chosen one is delivered. What is death and judgment for some is life and salvation in God's timing according to his plan. But the second thing, right, notice all the detail that the text goes into. It tells you what the basket is made of, what the ark is made of, how she waterproofs it, where she puts it, where her sister, where his sister is to watch over him. But there's actually a detail that it doesn't tell us what she thought would happen. Right? Why do this? What did she think would happen when she put him in a basket in the river? Did she hope that he wouldn't get eaten by alligators? Uh, did she expect or hope that he would be discovered by someone and saved? Whatever her plan was, we're not told. And that's glaringly obvious because we're not supposed to know what her plan was. Her plan is not the point. It's what God will do. It's how God is working through what she does to work out his plan so that God's will might be perfect 
Because then the details keep going, right? Look at all these coincidences that, that then happen. Now he's over here in the reeds. His sister is watching over him. And verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh just happened to come down and bathe at the river, right? And she just happened to see the basket, just happened to open it, just happened to see this baby and think, oh, so cute. And just happened to say, oh, well, here's somebody who can go fetch a wet nurse. And the sister just happened to go get the baby's mama. And the baby's mama just happened to get to raise him and get paid to actually raise her own kid. Right? All these coincidences just start adding up and piling together. And you start to see that God has been orchestrating things. That there's a purpose. That whatever she thought she was accomplishing by, by putting him in the river, God had his plan to position Moses in the household of Pharaoh. That what Pharaoh intended for evil, God was intending for good. And then she names him Moses. Because she said, I drew him up out of the water. And, of course, we know, reading forward, that Moses will have an interesting relationship with water. He will be the one to part the Red Sea. He will be the one to strike the rock. And water will burst forth. Or in reality, God will be the one to do those things through Moses. Moses is being raised up for a purpose. And already at the beginning of his life, we're seeing how we can project forward what he's going to do. There will be a deliverance coming from him through water. That the Lord is the one who has drawn him up out of the water. The Lord has purposely put him in Pharaoh's household so that in verse 10, he became Pharaoh's daughter's son. So now he is actually royalty because he's part of Pharaoh's household. So now we can ask the question, how do you think this affected Moses? What do you think is going on in Moses' head? Right, he gets raised by his mom, which is amazing. And, of course, she's probably telling him the story of how he was saved miraculously, about how she put him in the, in the ark, how the Lord drew him up out of the water and put him in the household of Pharaoh. She's telling him these stories. Meanwhile, right, he's in the household of Pharaoh being raised, a household that believes that Pharaoh is divinity itself. It's entirely possible that in Moses' mind, he's now starting to build an idea of who he is as some sort of divinely chosen agent, someone with a glorious purpose, someone who is strength and ability uh, and is going to seize the day. And I think that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what we see Moses then go on to do. In verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, we're not told why. Right? He suddenly decides that now is a good time to wander about and look on the burdens of Israel. We're not told what was going through his mind. But what we are told is that he sees Something happening. He sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And he goes into action. 
First notice what he doesn't do, right? He doesn't use his power and his position in the household of Pharaoh to command the Egyptian to stop. That's, that's reasonable. Perhaps he could not have done that. Perhaps he could have. But either way, right, he instantly goes into one mode of action. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now there's a couple of, of polar opposite ways to view this action. Right, we could see this as an act of justice, that Moses sees oppression, he sees injustice happening, and he says, I'm going to fix this. And he steps in and defends the weak by murdering this Egyptian. And that was a good thing. That's one way we could interpret this. That he is he's doing an act of justice, uh, an act of protection against someone weak. Or we could view it in the other way. Right? We could view this as an act of vengeance. We could view this as, as an act of unjustified violence, of rash uh, and brutish uh, violence. But I think with most of life, right, it's rarely so black and white. It's rarely just, oh, this is either a perfectly good thing or a perfectly bad thing. Because I think in Moses' own head, his intention, what he thinks he's doing, he believes it's a good thing. That what he is doing is he is stepping in to, to enter in to this weak person's life and help them and save them. And that his heart goes out to this person. He sees the burdens of Israel. He sees the injustice and the oppression happening and says, I have to do something. But then we also see how he does act, but he acts in a really suspicious way. Right? He makes sure that he's alone. He hides the evidence. He does all of this under a cover of secrecy, as though it were something wrong and shameful. And I think we can start to answer and put together the pieces when we think about how God will save Israel. When we start to think about how God will step in to protect the weak, to fix the injustice. Does God save Israel when nobody's looking? Does God step in to protect the weak by making sure that no one's around to see it? Does God hide the evidence? Or does God blow the trumpets and march right up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? Because that is how the Lord will do it. Not rashly, not brutishly. And he even, in his mercy, gives Egypt and Pharaoh multiple times, many, many, many times to repent, to let Israel go. And he warns Egypt. He says, this is what will happen. If you don't let Israel go, you're going to get plagues. I'm going to do what's necessary to get what is mine. But there's an opportunity for you to repent. But we see none of that in Moses' actions. I think even though Moses may have had good intentions, 
by his actions, he shows us that in reality, he's more concerned with doing things his way, achieving his goals that he believes are, are his divinely appointed, glorious purpose. That he is Israel's savior. He is going to step in. He is going to fix what's wrong. Instead of stopping and asking, what does God want? How can I serve the Lord? I think what happens next confirms that Moses' head is not in the right place. He is not in step with the will of God. Because what happens next is he goes out again. The next day. Like nothing happened. He goes out. It's almost like a little victory march. Like he's strutting around like, oh yeah, I'm great. I'm strong and powerful. And he sees two Hebrews this time struggling. Right? Look at verse uh, 13. Two Hebrews were struggling together. And Moses said to the man in the wrong. Right? He, he st- speaks to the man in the wrong as though Moses himself, as though he were the judge, as though he were the mediator between them. He says, why do you strike your companion? And this man says to Moses, uh, these words that cut right through all the baloney that has been building up in Moses' brain. Who made you prince and judge over us? Who appointed you to rule, to mediate, to save us? It's a great question, isn't it? That cuts right to the heart that lays Moses' heart open and shows us that is what Moses thinks he is. He thinks he's the prince and the judge and the jury and the executioner. He is Israel's Messiah, sent to save them. And he gives himself the authority to take any action he deems necessary, to do things however he wants to do them, And he thought so highly of himself that he took a life. That he killed and murdered an Egyptian. And of course, don't we see that his plan completely fails? Because the Hebrew says, are you going to kill me? Like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses took every precaution, thought he was so secretive, thought that nobody would know what he had done. And yet, obviously, not just the Hebrew finds out, but Pharaoh finds out. And everything crumbles. His life falls apart because he has failed. He is rejected by the people he thought he was to save. He's forced to flee from the land that he was born in and grew up in. Flee from his own uh, grandpa, who he had grown up knowing. Everybody that he knew and everybody who knew him 
he has to run from and go to a land far, far away, Midian, where nobody knows who he is. His dreams about how he was going to fulfill and achieve this glorious purpose, his illusions of grandeur, his, his uh, attempts to save Israel, everything collapses. Now he has no strength, no ability, and is left with nothing. He is crushed and empty. And all the the amazing things that he was going to do for God, what does he end up doing? Essentially settling a local land dispute in a land he's never been to before. Verse 16 and 17. There's a priest and he has daughters and they go out to water the flock. And for whatever reason, right, these shepherds come and are assaulting them and driving them away. And Moses stands up and saves them and mediates this dispute and even waters the flock of these women. Instead of right, saving an entire people from slavery, instead of fixing the, the radical injustice of Egypt's oppressive slavery against Israel, now his most significant achievement is watering the goats of someone that he's never met in a land where nobody knows his name, by himself, with no family and no friends. He's a nobody in this land with nothing left to do except be a shepherd. And that's exactly where the Lord wants him. That's exactly where the Lord wants to put him. Because even though Moses left Egypt empty, here in this land of Midian, God fills him again. God gives to him. He gives him a wife, a family, even a son. God provides for him through this priest of Midian, whose name Ruel means friend of God. A priest who now can work and be with Moses. And no longer does he have this glorious purpose. No longer does he have this this, uh, amazing thing that he was going to do. Now he waters animals. And then we have verses 23 through 25. Israel cries out to the Lord under their slavery. Their cries for help go up to God. Verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God heard. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. I think the thrust of these verses is that now is the time. Now the Lord says yes 
to his people's cries for help. Now that Moses is reduced to a nobody, humbled and broken, now the Lord says, it's time. Now the Lord says, I hear their cries and I am going to act. I see my people and I am going to step in. And not like how Moses stepped in. Moses saw what was happening and stepped in and did what he wanted to do in his timing. And it failed. But God will see and God will know what needs to be done. He will know his people, know their burdens. And he will step in and God will not fail. God will not fail. Because the Lord didn't need Moses to be this ambitious, self-confident, and righteous Messiah of a Moses person. He needed Moses humbled and broken and empty and weak because those are the people that God chooses. Those are the people that God uses over and over again. Those are the people that God calls to do his will, not because they are enough, not because they know what they're doing, not because they have all the strength and can be super confident all the time and can always make sure that other people like them. But God chooses the sinners, the tired, the broken, the nobodies who are laboring in obscure corners of the world doing small things, watering flocks. Those are the people that God knows, that God loves, and that God chooses. And that's the heart of the Lord that we see reflected through all of Scripture. It's the heart of the Lord that we see acting in this way. Not a God who acts in dramatic ways to make sure that everybody knows how great God is. Because even though he works for his own glory, how does he do it? But by laying himself down. By giving himself up for his people. By emptying himself so that his people might have life and peace. That is the Lord that we serve. The creator of the universe who is nonetheless willing to lower himself to become a nobody. Born in a tiny backwater town in a barn with a bunch of animals. He was the savior of all mankind and yet his name was spat upon and rejected and despised. He was esteemed, stricken, and smitten, and afflicted by God. He was willing to be ignored and rejected. That is the heart of the Lord. And he calls us not to be amazing people doing amazing things for God. He doesn't call us to be superstars and rock stars who are perfect Christians. He calls us to be nobodies. 
to be content to dwell in the backwater places of our lives, serving in small ways, being faithful with the small things, humbly submitting ourselves to his will, not to how we want to do things, not to doing the things that we think need to be done, but that we think God wants us to do, but submitting our will, our lives, our reputations, how others see us, submitting all of that to the Lord. And when we do that, we see so much more in Christ. We see in Christ our Savior. A Savior who, even though he is the Messiah, the true Messiah, that he washes our feet, that he lowers himself and serves us and serves you and continues to serve you week in and week out through the supper. Because when we come to the table, we don't see Jesus as a superstar, right? We see him in mundane, ordinary, and lowly things, bread and wine. We see Christ not in in his elevation, but in his humility. Because we see his glory through the supper, through the lowliness, through the cross, where he was ashamed and despised. That is where we see Christ and his heart and his love. That is where you see it and can receive through the blood and through the body the blessings of your Savior who lowered himself for you, who gave himself for you. Not so that you have to be a superstar before you can come and receive the blessings. Not because you have to have it all together. That you can only come to the supper once you've had a great week. Or once you've come to church with the right attitude and with the right smile on your face. But the supper is for those who are broken. The supper is for those who are tired. Whose lives have been shattered by sin and failure. To come and receive the blessings of Christ. To come and receive your Savior. And to see that he is good. To see that salvation comes not from you, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us go before the Lord and pray and ask him to apply his word uh, and his truth to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the riches of your mercy and your gifts to us. Thank you that every day we are reminded that you are with us, that we have evidences of your grace, not just today, but every day. But Lord, we need you. We often, Lord, think too highly of ourselves and we need your humbling mercy. We ask that you would be gentle as you humble us, that you would break down those walls of pride, 
of elevated views of ourselves and of our purpose, that you'd help us, Lord, to be content, to trust you, uh, to submit ourselves to you and to your sovereignty in our lives, to your sovereignty over every part of our lives. Lord, may you walk with us this week. May you comfort us when we fail. Comfort us, Lord, by knowing that it is your will that will be done. And that even if we should end up with our lives broken in, in many ways, you have a purpose for it. And Lord, even though we may be afflicted and oppressed by others, what they mean for evil, Lord, you mean for good. And you mean to use for our good and for your glory. Walk with us, Lord. Help us and mold us into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray all of this. Amen.